0: All right, we are going to pray together, uh, as is the practice. We are reading through the Psalms. So in Psalm 80, uh, at verse 3, it says this, So restore us, O God. Uh, how do you think he's going to do that? That's a question I would ask, right? I, I hear that line. I bet usually the way poetry works, they'll tell you a line, then they'll qualify it, tell you a line, qualify it. So restore us, O God. Okay, how? How? Let your face shine that we may be saved. So when God's face shines, it means his loving kindness shines on you. It means his blessing is upon you. It means his compassion is rich towards you. It means his mercy and his love is finding you, shining on you, enveloping you. And the result is you're saved. And surely that might be for the first time you become a Christian uh, but when you're a Christian, it's for the millionth time that you're put back together again because you're being restored. So if you want to be restored this morning, the only way you're going to be restored is for his face to shine upon you. And so that's what we're going to pray for. So we're going to do that for ourselves, our loved ones, as is our custom uh, for the church and for the city of Waco. So let's pray together. Oh, God. Um, Restore us. And so would you cause your face to shine upon us? And so we're all going to ask you right now to do that. So, Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we want to pray for our loved ones. We want to pray for our brothers and sisters. We want to pray for our parents, our children. We want to pray for our neighbors. Uh, We want to pray for our church leaders. We want to pray for the person to the right of us and to the left of us. We want to pray for those in our community groups. We want to pray for uh, those we do life with, uh, those that we're learning together to be a gospel team and to build our messy lives around you. Uh, We pray for them now that your face would shine upon them. then, Lord, we pray for this church, we pray for everybody here and everybody that's not able to make it this morning, Uh, we pray for all members, regular attenders, visitors, church leaders, pastors, our families, our friends, uh, the communities that are represented here. I mean, how many communities, how many schools? how many neighborhoods, how many places of work. And, oh God, I ask, we ask, that you would shine your face upon us, that we would know, as Paul prays, the depths, the heights, the widths, the wonders, the reaches The never ending power, the never ending touch of your face, your love, your mercy, your compassion, your grace towards us. And Lord, we know that when that happens, we're restored. Good night. When it happens with a bunch of people, they call it a revival. When it's like really significant in a region, it makes church history. And so, Lord, this is not um, an incidental prayer. Uh, This is the prayer. Oh, Lord, make your face to shine upon us. And we thank you that you did in Jesus. And so, we don't have to look any further than our brother that's right next to us, we don't have to look any further than the cross. We don't have to look any further than the most unbelievable resurrection in reality. And Lord, we pray for the culture, we pray for the city, we pray that as your face shines upon your people, your church all over Waco, uh, that we are restored and are ever restoring and that uh, we see things different. We become more human, we become more loving, uh, we become uh, more engaged in our work, and our jobs, and our vocations, we become more engaged at home, uh, we start making friends and having gospel conversations in not a stupid way, but an absolutely normal human way, um, and the city changes, and more and more people are reached, and more and more people are restored, and more and more people are put back together. And, Lord, we ask that you would do this for the sake of your glory. We ask that you would do this for the sake of your face in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. We're back in Philippians. Uh, We never left it, by the way, but we're back this Sunday in Philippians. It's kind of just a reminder for me. Uh, so here's how we're going to get started. Uh, we're, we're getting to the end, which is amazing. We're, we're getting to the end of chapter 2. There's 3. 3 is like, well, chapter 2 is the epicenter. 3 is like the next level down. So I don't know what comes after Everest in terms of peaks, but chapter 3 will be the next peak down, and then there'll be some wrap-ups in 4. So we're moving towards the end. But here's how we're going to begin. So my daily practice, you know, I've told you before, is to read a psalm uh, on Sunday mornings, right, for us to pray. But that's actually what I do daily uh, before I read the Bible. So you might say, well, that's a, aren't you reading the Bible when you read the Psalms? You are correct. But it is my practice before I actually read the Bible to read a psalm. And you might be saying, Jeff, well, why do you do that? And I would say, because I have to. Because, and my wife knows this more than anybody, because I am like a storm. And I need God to speak peace. Be still. And the wind and the waves ceased, and there was a great calm. I need that every single morning for me the psalms are like a coin like on one side of the coin I read the psalms to find myself, to find my voice the psalms show every expression of the human condition I'm looking for me in the psalms one side of the coin on the other side of the coin it's where God finds me it's where God hears me It's where God sees me. It's where God has grace and compassion and loves me. So I have to read the Psalms. So Friday morning, I'm reading Psalm 77. And I'm listening. It is my practice for what strikes me. That's how, you know, what's your plan? What's your reading plan, pastor? It's like really, really simple. I say, Oh God, speak me back to life again. And then I listen for what strikes me. That's how I read. What strikes me. And so I didn't get very far because I got to verse 4 and it says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So now Psalm 77 has my attention. And then the next thing that happens is a psalmist just starts pounding God with these Desperate questions. He starts saying, has your acceptance come to an end, God? Has your favor come to an end, God? Has your promises come to an end, God? Has your never-ending, it's almost like he's putting words together to kind of, I don't know, say things. (laughs) Like, has your never-ending love ended? Have you forgotten to be gracious, God? Have you shut the door on all your compassion? The 77th psalmist wants to know and needs to know, Oh God, do you still work? Do you still So most people who go to church today will say stuff like this. Most of us, I mean, I mean, the majority of us, 99.9% of us that go to church, crust all traditions, we will say God worked in the past, right? Because we have our Bibles. We see it. You know, we, we can look at it. We can read about it. We say, oh, man, God did big stuff, like Bible stuff, big stuff. We all will say that. Now, many people, so just a little less than the most people, will say that God works in the present right I mean most of us will say that but when you start you know kind of diving in a little bit to like okay well what do you mean that he works in the present then things can get a little confusing and even a little controversial because you know you ask one tradition and they'll say God works in meaningful experiences feel it so then you're like okay he works in meaningful experiences feel it and then some traditions will say he works in right doctrine think it and so now you're trying to think it. And then another tradition says God works in mission. And you say, okay, they say do it. So I, I start doing it. And then another tradition says he works in the true church. And then you're like, okay, join it. Where is it? Then another tradition says he works in the Holy Spirit. So activate, I was going to say it, but it's a he, it's a person, activate him. And here are the signs to know it took. And then another tradition will say, well, God works in the present through a specially anointed person. And you're like, okay, so what's the call there? Well, don't miss out. Get to that person. Flock to that person. It's where God works. And then another tradition says God works in right worship. And so then we're in this whole high church stuff. Then God works in social justice, so be against it. Then God works in holiness, so improve it, get better. God works in another tradition, so change it. God works in relationship, not religion, so don't organize it. Sometimes God working in the present can be a little confusing. (laughs) Now, fewer people. So now we're just, you know, we started with most. We moved to many. And now we've gone to few people. Few people will say, God works in my life. God works in me. Oh God, do you still work? Do you still? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, this is not being preached at all, but isn't it interesting that Paul is saying, God is concerned that I would have too much sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Well, that's interesting. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. O so, Lord, we ask that you would shine your face upon us on the page. So, Lord, grant it. Grant it. Okay, so last week we ended with a big doctrine. Do you remember that? In verse 13 in chapter 2, it was this, quote, God is the one who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you could say it this way. Who is God? God is the one who works. God, who are you, God? You want to know who God is? You say, God, who are you? And God says, I'm the one who works. This week, we're asking the one who works Do you still work? Do you still work? Paul's answer in today's text is really, really strange. Because he doesn't say God works in meaningful experiences. He doesn't say God works in you doing ancient spiritual disciplines. He doesn't say God works by you getting your doctrine right. He doesn't say God works in mission. God works in the true church. God works in the Holy Spirit. You know, what else did I say before? All that stuff. He simply says, "Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus." So, let's look at Timothy. Philippians two nineteen. There we go. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now, Timothy is not an apostle, so he's not one of the especially anointed. There were some especially anointed people in the church. They were called apostles. So I want you to think ordinary pastor. So the apostles see the risen Jesus. They're the ones that are redemptive agents for inscripturating God's word. The church is built on that inscripturated word, the apostolic word. So what happens after the apostles in terms of church leaders are called pastors and that's just normal stuff and that's been going on since the apostles left and Timothy is the first generation of a normal dude. A normal pastor. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him. Whoa. No one like him. Is he especially anointed? Verse 22 but you know Timothy's proven worth. So you know he's appealing to the church in Philippi. Oh, you, you know this dude. You know him. And you know his proven worth. Proven worth. What is proven worth? You know his proven worth. What is that? So Luther used to be asked all the time, Luther, how do you know that God's at work in you? Luther, how do I know when he's at work in my life? He's He asked that a, lot. It's, a it's a great question because it's a question Everyone wants to know. You want to know. You want to know, God, do you work? I know you work in the Bible. And I know you work in these special anointed people. I know you work in pastors. Do you work in me? Do you work in me? And Luther would say, here's how you know he works in you. And he would give a two-part answer. And the second part was this. He works In the school of experience. What's the school of experience? The school of experience is you having to live with yourself. Proven worth. See, the proven worth is Timothy has been to the school of experience and things have happened in the school of experience that have shown things about him. Or really the picture is in the school of experience, God did things in him. Usually everybody thinks the school of experience is this massive test. It happens. How are you going to do? And we're all like anxious. Am I going to do it? Am I going to do When it gets to that point, am I going to pass? It's so interesting that all the ancient Greek gods and all the ancient ideologies of the past always had trials and always had tests. Always these competitions to, like, prove yourself. Will I prove myself? This God did, this God didn't. Will I prove myself? We're all thinking that. But what's interesting in God's school of experience is that he's not trying to have you prove yourself. In the school of experience, he's working in you to do things in you. And so... The school of experience is having to live with yourself. It's having to live with others. It's having to live in a fallen world with devils filled. It's having to suffer without relief. Despite your prayers. It's having to live with failure and rejection and stress. Does anyone live with stress? Welcome to the school of experience. It's having to live with not getting what you want. It's having to live with children, if you're a parent, that aren't doing well. It's having to fail algebra. Those of you who are visiting, algebra is kind of like a thing we do here. We like algebra. It's like not being loved. It's like losing someone you love. The school of experience is where God is actually at work in your life. Real places, real people, not the faraway lands that you hear about and that people come back and give reports to. It happens there too. Well, what's part one, though, to Luther's two-part answer? Luther says... You want to know where God is at work here's how he's at work there are two things that are always going to happen two things that are always going to be taking place two things that are always present when God's at work in your life the first one is the school of experience or the second one's the school of experience because the first thing he would say to them is gospel teaching so where are you at work God how do I know you're at work what does it feel like when you're at work how do we know you're Present and you've descended and you've shined your face upon us, and he would say, Wherever there's gospel teaching. Verse 22 How is a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. See that? That's an incredible image. Sons and fathers, the bond. Paul is saying, Timothy is bound like a son to a father to me and gospel teaching. Timothy is loyal like a son to a father to me and gospel teaching. That father-son bond. Paul tells another church, he says, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of my gospel life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere to every church. There's a guy named D.A. Carson. It's like almost like if, if you're a pastor and you, know, you get into a, a theological dispute or uh, an interpretive dispute of a text, if you quote D.A. Carson, everybody goes, oh, that's not fair. Okay, you win. D.A. Carson says Timothy was Paul's favorite agent because he was faithful to Paul's gospel teaching. Oh, God, do you still work? Do you still? Paul, the Bible, God says yes. First in gospel teaching, second and taking that gospel teaching into your school of experience. So the Bible tells me, I read the Bible and it's going to say, Jeff, you're sinful. The Bible's going to tell me the truth and I need to hear that truth. I need to hear reality. The school of experience, if the Bible is going to tell me, the school of experience is going to show me It's going to show me when I'm angry in my stress. It's going to show me when I'm self-important in relational conflict. It's going to show me and make me feel my false hope when I fail. When someone doesn't like me, which I know you can't imagine. So the Bible tells you, you need a Savior, and you need to hear that. You need to hear good news. And then the school of experience shows you, I need a Savior. The Bible tells you, Jesus is your sin. He became your sin. The Bible tells you that Jesus is your righteousness. That your righteousness is a person. And then the school of experience in your anger. Jesus is my sin. And in your self-importance, Jesus He's my righteousness. He's all the importance I need. Now, some of you are thinking, well, of course, Jeff, of course. Of course God works in Timothy's life. He's special. Remember, verse 20, for I have no one like him. Let's go to verse 20. For I have no one like him. Get around that one, pastor. I have no one like him. Right? Okay. Okay. Answer, here's, I got three answers for you. Answer number one, maybe he is. He is a pastor after all. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. Come on. <laughs> Answer number two, maybe he is because he's Paul's friend. Here's the literal translation. Are you ready? I have no one like him means I have no one equal in soul with me. It'd be like Paul saying, remember C.S. Lewis says, listen. Lovers look at each other and admire each other. Friends stand side by side looking at the same thing, saying, What? You two? Paul and Timothy stand side by side and they look at the same thing, like a father to the son. Look, I have no one, Paul is saying, like him, like minded, single mission. Answer number three. Maybe he is, but not like you think. Because watch what happens immediately after that. Verse 20. For I have no one like him who, here it comes, here's what is no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests. What that means is all those that are around Paul, remember because he was saying that I don't care if people preach out of selfish ambition. They are. I just want Jesus to be preached, right? So now this is a little blow-up of what's happening is that most of the church leaders and pastors are seeking to be self-important. They need to be important. That's what this means, okay? So, Paul, how do you know God is at work in me? Paul, you go up to Paul and you say, Paul, how do I know God is at work in me? How do I know? What does it look like when he's at work in me? How do I know he's, like, moving and, and doing stuff in my life? And Paul says... Your need to be important will become less and less. Well, what about those meaningful experiences that the other traditions are saying? What about, you know, getting your doctrine all set and squared away, like other traditions say? What about the other traditions that talk about really emphasizing spiritual disciplines and how to access the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on? And Paul says, here's how you know God is at work in your life. Your need to be important will go less and less and less and less. Remember John the Baptist? I've got to increase. I've got, I've got to decrease. He has to increase. And you know what happens when your need to be important grows less and less and less? You have the freedom now to love more and more, and more, and so what Paul is saying, what the Bible is saying, do you want to know where God is at work in the world, in the present, where people's need to be important is being extinguished, and Jesus is becoming more important, and people are being loved, For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Oh God, do you still work? Do you? Still? Paul says yes. The Bible says yes. God says yes. First and foremost in gospel teaching. Second, taking that gospel teaching into your school of experience. All right, let's look at Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and messenger and minister to my needs. So here we go. Epaphroditus is not an apostle. He's probably not a pastor either. You know, some people push that he's a pastor because of some of the language that's going on here. I, I don't think so. Uh, I don't need to tell you all the reasons why, I'm just giving you my opinion. I don't think he's a pastor. I want you to think of of Epaphroditus as a normal Christian, an ordinary churchgoer, okay? Uh, And you know, he lives, so he lives in Alexander the Great's hometown. This is incredible. Now his name, Epaphroditus, means he was named after a Greek goddess. And the Greek goddess was the goddess of love. And if you read all the Bible people, they always say, goddess of love but if you want to read like the real literature it's going to be the sex god okay so that's Epaphroditus so notice how Epaphroditus doesn't feel the need to change his name isn't that interesting I mean again this is not part of the sermon but I just thought gosh that's so interesting why isn't he burning his records I don't get it so I heard recently about a local pastor who applauded a football player for quitting his team because of the profanity being used on the team because the football players called to a higher calling of holiness. The football player is called to be separate from the world. The football player is called to take serious following God. You know what Epaphroditus would tell the football player? Stop thinking so highly of yourself. You're not that important. The mission isn't you, the mission is your team. Get out of the way. Be a part of what God's doing. This is why Paul calls him my brother, verse 25. See that? My brother. And that my continues to the other descriptions. My brother, my brother is a deep Bond. I have a brother. Who has a brother? All right. You know what I'm talking about. I messed with my brother. I messed with him. I messed with him relentlessly. That's why he's such a great athlete, or was. (laughs) But nobody else messes with my brother, no one. My brother and fellow worker. So now what's happening is my brother is going to be expanded. My brother's a deep bond. When you get to fellow worker, that, bond is, that deep bond is being described by they were doing the same work. Then it goes into fellow soldiers. So that bond now is going to move to they were doing the same work. They were on the same mission, and it was hard, and they endured it together. Then you go into the part where it says, you're messenger and minister for my needs. So we're still trying to figure out who this Epaphroditus is, right? So Epaphroditus, first, the Philippian church sends him to Paul. Second, Paul sends him back to the Philippian church. So now verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Verse 34, he nearly died for the work of Christ. So what makes a brother? What makes deep bonds? Paul says the work of Christ. Well, what makes the bond of working hard? Paul says, the work of Christ. Well, what makes someone endure and never quit the work of Christ? So who are you, Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is the one who was sent to Paul. Epaphroditus is the one that Paul sent to the church. Epaphroditus is the one sent. Epaphroditus lives his life doing what football coaches call kissing the dirt. He's on the ground, he's face planted, he's eating dirt. The ancient world called it bowing. Why is he kissing the dirt? Well, Philippians 2, remember, tells us about this name, the name. And his name is the Lord. And the Lord means the risen one won. And the scene is he won. He did everything that needed to be done he won a comprehensive salvation he won the smile of God towards sinful people is guaranteed and what's echoing throughout the earth above the earth below in the heavens is the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn to you. And give you his peace. In your coming. In your going. In your rising. In your lying. In your moments. And in your hours. In all the days of your life. Epaphroditus is kissing the dirt. Every creature on earth is kissing the dirt. Every Creature under the earth is kissing the dirt. Every creature in heaven is kissing the dirt. Most because they want to, some because they have to. Epaphroditus is kissing the dirt. And he's looking at the resurrected one. Jesus. Please, let me run. Let me take the victory that you accomplished and tell every creature on the earth and every creature under the earth. And if you let me, I'll tell every creature in heaven. And Jesus says, run, Epaphroditus, run. Epaphroditus is the one sent. Oh, God, do you work still? Do you still? And Paul, the Bible, and Jesus says to you right now, Jesus says to you right now. Look at me, the risen one. This is the work. And it's finished.